William Carey was a British missionary. There's a quote that was given to him. I didn't see if it was from him directly. It was quoted from another person, but it said something to this effect. Ask great things of God and go on to expect great things from God. Ask great things of God and expect great things from God. The reason why I begin with this this morning is because what's the point of sitting in a chair on a Sunday morning in a group of people if we haven't come to ask God to do great things? If we haven't come to ask God to do something significant, what is the point? If we merely come to sit and observe, to hum a few notes, and then to leave and be the same people that we were when we walked in here, what is the point? There is none. There is no point to that. If we don't come expecting God to do great things in our life, if we don't come expecting God to change us and to work in and through us, then we are wasting our time. And so as we come this morning, I want us to set our hearts and our minds on an expectation that God is going to show up and do something significant. I'm not talking about the indwelling of the spirit of your salvation for believers in this room. He is always with us. But throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit fall on his people, fall on his church, fall on the apostles in specific and intentional ways. And here's what I want us to do. We are not here with coins seeking to plug them into the jukebox that is God and expect him to play a tune for us. That's not what we're here for. What we are here for is to come expectantly waiting and anticipating him to do all that he desires. And so I'm, I don't want us to come here this morning with a want list. I want us to come here with an expectancy and ask God to do just that. I want us to ask God to do something significant in our lives here, now, this morning. Not later. Now. And here's the thing. If we are all submitted to the Lord in this way, he will do all that he desires. If we come humbly, if we ask him to do this, he will do this. Revivals are sparked from such requests. Because connecting to that request, and we'll see this in our text this morning... There's a requirement when we ask God to do all that he desires, that we come ready to confess, repent of our sin, and to be filled with him. And so that's what I want us to come with as we approach our text this morning. Do you honestly believe that God has done all that he desires to do already in our church? Does anyone honestly believe that? I hope there's a resounding no Do you honestly believe that God has done all that he desires to do in our church through this group of believers? Absolutely not. I think the Lord is taking us on to something powerful. And by powerful, I'm not talking about something that's going to get us a lot of attention. By powerful, I mean something that's significant for his kingdom. I think God is going to do something significant for his kingdom in Rathdrum, Idaho. Yes, it sounds crazy. But I honestly believe that. And I'm excited to see what that is. But it begins with us coming, asking the Lord, cleanse our lives, cleanse us of sin, prepare us for whatever you want to do. We're about to open his word. I realize that this has been quite a few weeks in Ezekiel. And if you ask pastors what the most popular text for them to teach is, it's probably not going to be Ezekiel. In fact, I saw a chart, and I don't know how accurate it is, but I was looking at a chart of the most untaught books of the Bible. 
if I recall, Ezekiel was the least taught book of the Old Testament. Now, I'm sure that changes from time to time. But it's crazy, isn't it? This isn't something you'd be like, oh, Ezekiel, fabulous. Looking forward to that. You know, here's the thing. We can approach the Bible like that and be like, oh, man, Ezekiel, why not like the Gospel of John? I mean, that's where the Spirit really works, right? You guys, Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 12 says, the word of God is living and effective. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That includes the prophecy of Ezekiel. That includes any book of the Bible that we open up and we read his word. It has the ability to do all of these things. It can penetrate as far as the separation of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So it's with that surgical precision, with that in mind, that we come and we ask God, dissect us this morning. Dissect us because we are expectant. We have an expectancy for you to do something, and it starts right here in our hearts. It starts right here with us as a body, yet also individually. And so, I believe that God's called us into his throne room of grace, just as his word says. And that if we come repentant of sin, he will fill us with his joy. Not do everything we want, he will fill us with his joy. And so that's my desire for us this morning. Would you pray with me and then we'll begin our study time. God, I pray over this congregation. I pray over our time this morning that you would do something significant. Lord, that you would revive us. That you would awaken us. Lord, we know your spirit is with us. You haven't left us as orphans. But Lord, there are specific times when your spirit falls on a group of people. You did it, Lord of the church, in Acts chapter 4. God, you did it as... As your people begin to heal. As I think of Peter and John. Lord, as I think of Paul. Barnabas. Lord, you work so powerfully through these people. You can work powerfully through us as well. So Lord, we come submitted and we ask that your Holy Spirit do something here that we cannot. That is revive our souls. Awaken us. Aliven us. Give us understanding of your word. And God, would you just use us? Use what we're going to study this morning to equip us for going and being your ambassadors, which is what we're called to be, Jesus, because of you. So Lord, do something in us this morning that is significant. Anoint your word. Speak, Lord, to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 24, if you would. Ezekiel 24 is where we'll be studying. Uh, We'll look at the first section of this chapter this morning. And to kind of refresh us as you're turning there briefly as to what's happened so far, sometimes we can get lost in the the chapter-by-chapter study, and I want to remind you what's happened so far in a real brief overview. In section 1 of this prophecy, in chapters 1 through 11, 
Um, it was the accusations that God was giving Ezekiel to make against Israel. He was accusing his people of what they'd done, and accurately so, because God is always truthful and always right. And then at the end of chapter 11, something significant happens. We're going to look at chapter 11 a little bit this morning, just in comparison to chapter 24. But in chapter 11, something very significant happens at the end of that chapter. The glory of the Lord departs from the temple. The glory of the Lord leaves. That's significant. The people were so idolatrous. They were so sick. They were so sinful. They were so twisted. God had warned them over and over and over again, over hundreds of years, and finally said, that's it. And his glory leaves the temple, and it heads off towards the east, which is interesting and interestingly enough, where Ezekiel and the first wave of exiles were. Heads off in their direction. The glory of the Lord does. And the beginning of Ezekiel's prophecies... Part of the shock value for Ezekiel, by the way, who was on his 30th birthday, which was when he would have been installed as a priest in Israel, but he's in exile because Babylon carried him away. He's there and the glory of the Lord appears to him. And this huge question presents itself. What is the glory of the Lord doing here in exile in Babylon with, with his people? Well, the glory of the Lord left the temple because of the sin. And you understand this. There is, there is no power in this building. There is no power in, in, in obviously, like we're meeting in a school. Like, I mean, like, you think about this, like, we, we go to a church and sometimes people are like, oh, you know, you hear kids say it all the time. If you do youth group, they're like, you know, someone will say something or something like, shh, you're in a church, you know? Oh, like, it would be okay if you're five feet away outside. Like, that would make it all right, you know? But you think about this, that's exactly the kind of thinking that God's correcting. He's saying, this isn't about a building. You don't worship a building. You worship a God who created everything you've ever seen. That God wants a relationship with you. The building cannot have a relationship with you. I hope that you don't have a build or a relationship with Betty Kiefer Elementary. You know, Josh might, but I mean, but that you may not have like, you know, this relationship. He's like, no, I don't. You, you, you shouldn't have a relationship with a building. The living God wants a relationship with you. And so the departure of the, of the presence of God, of the glory of the presence of the Lord was significant for the people, but they weren't listening. They weren't paying attention. And so in chapters 12 through 24, the judgment pronouncement has been made upon Israel. Finishing with this chapter that we're in here, Ezekiel 12 through 24 contains the judgment pronouncement. And Ezekiel has used parables. He's used allegory. He's been like, per, like one man theater for the people that we've seen. He's done all of these different things that God has told him to, to show them that God is finished with their sin. And they continue to not listen and turn from their ways. He's used every means that God has given him, not only to reveal what God will do, but just how foul the sin of his people is in reality. If you don't believe me and you weren't here last week, go listen to the study on Ezekiel 23. How many of you were here last week for Ezekiel 23? How many of you were uncomfortable? Keep your hand up. Here's the thing. It's, it's, It's a very uncomfortable chapter. But here's the point. God is making his point so clearly. This is how gross sin is to me. This is how detestable it is. It cannot remain. It can't stay. So Ezekiel 24 marks the final installment of the prophet's revelation of the destruction of Israel. We get into chapter 25, carrying on through chapter 32. We begin a section that is the judgments against the nations around them. 
And this prophecy really is broken up pretty clearly into very understandable sections. But it's important as we look at chapter 24 that we realize this is the final judgment that God is going to pronounce against his people here in this section. And it's heavy. It's heavy. It's full of weight. And it's sad. And it begins in a sad way. It begins in a very sad way. Look at Ezekiel chapter 24. Verses 1 through 5. We're going to cover this first section, which goes through verse 14. And this is called the parable of the boiling pot. You're like, oh, that's weird. Uh, It's not really weird if you've read chapter 11. It's actually a clarification of the way that the people viewed themselves. And so God uses this parable to present things as they actually are. So let's look at verses 1 through 5, and we'll break this down as we go this morning. Ezekiel 24, verse 1, reads this way. The word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month. Son of man, write down today's date, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Now speak a parable to the rebellious house. Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. Put the pot on the fire, put it on, and then pour water into it. Place the pieces of meat in it, every good piece. Thigh and shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock and also pile up the fuel under it. Bring it to a boil and cook the bones in it. You're like, hmm, soup. Not quite. Not quite. This date that's given here is so significant. It's such a significant date. The Bible is so precise. Ezekiel prophesies from exile, and the Lord tells him on the exact day, Babylon is now besieged Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take it out. It's done. The siege has begun. This was such a huge event in their history. There would be an ordered fast following this. On this date, year after year, it was an annual fast to mourn and lament this siege that began. This will end horribly for the people. Such a significant day, January of 588 BC. Some scholars even go to the point of saying it was January 15th, 588 BC. They peg it down to the day and say this is the day that it happened. It's recorded in three other places in scripture, not just in Ezekiel 24, but in 2 Kings 25, 1, in Jeremiah 39, 1, and Jeremiah 52, 4. All four of these places, including our text here in Ezekiel 24, call out this date. This is when the siege of Jerusalem began. This is when it happened. All this to prove something that we ought to know. What God said he will do, he does. What God said he will do, he absolutely will do. Such an amazing truth, and it applies to blessing and judgment. It applies to both sides. Think about this. They'll put it up on the screen. Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28 reads like this. This is Moses speaking to the people. Look today, I set before you a blessing and a curse. There will be a blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God I am giving you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God, and you turn aside from the path I've commanded you today by following other gods you have not known. Now, it's funny because we act like God is, you know, I don't know what he's doing right now. Well, okay, there can be times in our lives where we don't really understand what God is doing or the path that he's taking us on. But when it comes to what God expects of us, 
when it comes to what right and wrong is, when we look at the Bible, is there any confusion? It's really clear. Good job. It's really clear. It's very clear what God expects of us. And it's funny because people go, well, I mean, there's all these rules. Look, it's right here. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, can we say the the curse word in here? I'll curse you. The curse word. (laughs) You're all like, (gasps) that's what, it's a curse. I'll curse you. He made it so clear to them, don't turn after these false gods. This warning was issued before they even stepped foot into the promised land. They hadn't even crossed the Jordan. They weren't taking the promised land. They were there. They were ready. But Deuteronomy, a second law, it was the reading of the law in the next generation's ears. And so the generation that God had said, remember the people at Sinai, woo, 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 golden calf, all that stuff. And Moses comes down, breaks the Ten Commandments. You know how this works. They all died off in the wilderness, just like God said. It's almost like he keeps his word. They died off just like he said. And then what happened? Well, the next generation gets their shot. And he says, don't do what your fathers did. Did your mom ever say that to you, kids? (laughs) Don't do what your father's doing. It's funny to us, but we think about it in the terms of sin. How much do we not want our kids to repeat our sin? To repeat the things that we did that we messed up at. How hard are we working at teaching them the consequences and showing them? It's almost like God put that into us. Teach your children. Train them up in the way they should go. Don't allow them to fall into the sin that you've fallen into. Why? Because it's terrible and it has long-term ramifications. It's almost like God was right all along. If we just obey him, he would bless us. And if we don't, we experience the consequence. God always does what he says he will do. Well, with that in mind, as we look at the the beginning of the parable in verse 3, he says, now speak a parable to the rebellious house. That's never how we want to be identified, by the way. Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. Put the pot on the fire, put it on, then pour water into it. Place the pieces of meat in it, every good piece thigh and shoulder. Good pieces. Notice that. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock and also pile up the fuel under it. Bring it to a boil and cook the bones in it. Now what's interesting about this, this parable connects to Ezekiel 11. I mentioned that before. It connects to Ezekiel 11 where the leadership of Israel called out They get called out by God because they refer to Jerusalem as the pot which provides protection and security. And what they're saying is, Ezekiel and the exiles that have already been taken away by Babylon, see, they were the problem. They were the problem. They're like the entrails that are discarded. Nobody wants that. See, we here in Jerusalem, we're the choice cuts. And here's what God does, is he clarifies for them in Ezekiel chapter 11, um, you're not the choice cuts. You're not the choice cuts. You totally view this wrong. You have a wrong view of why you are where you are, and you're not even right about how this is going to happen. And in fact, it says this in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, speaking to the leadership, the city will not be a pot for you. You will not be the meat within it. I will judge you at the border of Israel. So you will know that I am the Lord whose statutes you have not followed and whose ordinances you have not practiced. Instead, you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. 
He says that to the leadership. He says, first off, you're wrong because you're not the choice cuts. You're not the special meat that's protected inside this pot. You see that we got rid of all. Now God has this special group of people who are really, you know, the choicest of the choice choice, right? That's not even a phrase, but you understand what I'm saying. By the way, that prophecy over the leaders, I want you to use that later. Choice, choice. That prophecy was fulfilled. Second Kings chapter 25 verses 18 through 21. The leadership were captured in Riblah. They weren't captured in Jerusalem. Why? Because after the siege, before Babylon finally takes the city, they cut tail and run. They run, they get out of town. They catch Zedekiah farther down the road and they kill his sons in front of him and gouge his eyes out. This is how this plays out for them. It's horrific. And they're telling, uh, oh, well, we're the choice cuts. Those people that got carried away in exile, they're Garbo. And he's like, no, 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 no. See, my glory is departing from here. Because you people are sinful. I'm going to start something new with these people of exiles in Babylon. It's almost like sometimes we get it into our heads that we're a little more special than we actually are. So now here in Ezekiel 24, God reveals his prophecy over the people that are there. The leadership are going to be captured outside Ribla, Zedekiah fleeing as well, the king. But the people who remained there, you see, they were a product of their leadership. Seems like this comes up a lot. Sometimes I look over my nose like, ah, should I talk about that? I talked about it last time. Then the Lord's like, do it. Leadership. People are a product of the leadership they follow. They start to look like them. So these people believed what their leaders were telling them, that they were the choices of the choice choice, right? They were the special ones. So God reveals that the people who share this view of the exiles being the outcast entrails and themselves as being choice meat, the pot will not provide protection or security. In fact, it becomes the vessel of their undoing. You see, we're safe in Jerusalem. Nothing's going to happen to us here. We're safe in America. I'm sorry, Jerusalem. Nothing will ever happen to us here. We do so much good. How would God get his work done throughout the world without American dollars? Why would he ever judge us? Why would he ever bring punishment on our nation? For those of you who are like, yeah, but what about his church? What about his people? When we look at the second half of Ezekiel 24 next week, we'll see something that's life-changing. Sometimes we suffer too. Sometimes we suffer in this life too, but we do not suffer as those who do not have hope. But we still suffer. And so when God's judgment comes, it comes on a nation that has turned its back on him that has rejected him. God help us. The city becomes the container within which they will be destroyed. Put the pot on the fire. Put it on and pour the water in it. Put the meat inside of it. Every, notice the qualifiers, good piece, thigh and shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. He goes even further. Take the choicest of the flock. Do you notice how the, the writer builds that part of it, he builds that, that, that kind of goes upwards in speciality, saying like, no one's beyond this. No one escapes this. Pile up the fuel under it, 
bring it to a boil, cook the bones in it. They have deceived themselves to their own death. They have deceived themselves to their own doom. Are you catching the spiritual parallels here? Because this stuff is striking when you think about what we do with sin. This is striking when you think about how we act with sin. I don't sin in church. It's God's house. I'll sin at home. So nobody knows about it. (laughs) Just imagine your home's a big pot. You guys, God has turned their own way of identifying themselves apart from him into a pronouncement of judgment. The way they said, we're the choice meat, we're over here, we're in the, you know, we're in Jerusalem. He's like, no, 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 no. Let me show you the reality of the situation. You know, step one, one step back and you're actually on a burner and you're actually in a lot of trouble. You're in big trouble. Their actions revealed anything but the lives of those who live to please God. They live to please themselves. Their sins have been identified throughout the prophecy of Ezekiel. All the horrible things they've done. All the idol worship. There, there's no more accusations to be made. They're, they're full. They're done. They're guilty. But they still think that they're okay. They still think they're alright. Why? Well, we have the temple. <laughs> uh-huh. And that can't be taken away from you. You know, if the thing that you value the most can be taken away from you, you have an idol problem. There's idolatry in your life. If the thing that you value the most can be taken away from you, you have idolatry in your life. James says this, for people who trust in the Lord, for people who live according to his ways, for people who say, I have a relationship with God, he says then this, be doers of the word, James one twenty two, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You see, we'll know what we believe by what we do, how we live. And if what comes out of your life is not the product of what godly living should look like, you have a problem. I have a problem when that happens. Deception is to think you're good with God merely because you listen to him in a Bible study. Merely because you listen or even agree. True agreement manifests in action. If you truly agree with something, it will come out in your life through your living. And that's where the change should come. And that's where the conviction should fall on us is when we look at our lives and go, that's not me. That's not me. I don't do that. There should be conviction there. If you don't live it Monday through Saturday, your faith is dead. James chapter 2 is all about it. If you don't live true submission and obedience to God Monday through Saturday, then it's pointless. It doesn't matter if you only do it here. It doesn't matter if the temple is still there. It doesn't matter that they think they're safe and secure. What matters is the way God sees it. Amen? What only matters is how God sees it. If this is how God sees it, we adjust to him. Because God doesn't have a problem. I was sharing this with my kids earlier. 
couple weeks ago, we were talking and, and we were studying through the gospel of Mark and it said he did everything well. The people noted that about Jesus. Behold, he does everything well. The way the words flow echoes the thought and the intent behind Genesis when it says he looked at his creation. Behold, it was very good. It's like the author's way of saying, we looked at the life of Jesus and everything that he did, and behold, it was very good. It was perfect. It's God's way of saying perfection. If God calls us good, if he calls it good, it's good, right? This is what God wants to do in us. And his standard is the standard that we live to. And so our hunger and our desire is always to be good his way, not our way. You know, one of the things that you probably hear when you witness to people often is that you talk to them about, you know, what good actually means. You know, well, I'm basically a good person. How many of you heard that? Well, I'm, I'm a good person. Define good. Well, you know, I uh, don't punch everyone. I mean, like, if you think about it, it's like the other day, I was really mad in traffic, and I did not say that thing I wanted to say. I mean, good job. But if that's your definition of good... That's, um, did you notice how I said that? Your definition of good? It's about God's definition. The people have a problem. They think they're fine. It doesn't matter what they think. What matters is how God sees them. They're in a pot that's getting boiled. Look at the corrosion that's happened within. Let's read the rest of the section. Verse six. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. This is what matters. What does God say? Woe to the city of bloodshed, the pot that has corrosion inside it, and its corrosion has not come out of it. Empty it piece by piece. Lots should not be cast for its contents, for the blood she shed is still within her. She put it out on the bare rock. She didn't pour it on the ground to cover it with dust. In order to stir up wrath and vengeance, I have put her blood on the bare rock so that it would not be covered. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, woe to the city of bloodshed. I myself will make the pile of kindling large. Pile on the logs and kindle the fire. Cook the meat well. Mix in the spices. Let the bones be burned. Set the empty pot on its coals so that it becomes hot and its copper glows. Then its impurity will melt inside it. Its corrosion will be consumed. It has frustrated every effort. Its thick corrosion will not come off into the fire with its corrosion. Because of the depravity of your uncleanness, since I tried to purify you, but you would not be purified from your uncleanness, you will not be pure again until I have satisfied my wrath on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming, and I will do it. I will not refrain, I will not show pity, and I will not relent. I will judge you according to your ways and deeds. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Comparison, as we look at verses 6 through 8 in more detail, comparison between the people of God and idolatrous nations should not happen. Comparison between the people of God and idolatrous nations should not happen. Are we guilty? Could we be compared? Could my lifestyle be compared to a worldly person's? I'm not talking about we all have to eat, we all have to shower, we all have to sleep. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about what comes out of me. 
I'm talking about the things I say, the things I do. Are they comparable to idolatrous nations? The city of God, because of Israel's rebellious hearts and the actions that come from those hearts, can be compared to the worst cities of heathens, the most vile. One, for example, Nineveh. Nahum chapter one, chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. Notice what it says in verse 6, and again in verse 9. Woe to the city of bloodshed. God is identifying the actions of his people with some of the worst pagan nations that are around them. The pot is corroded. The blood that they've shed was left uncovered. Verses 7 through 8 covers this, which is a reminder that doing this would evoke God's vengeance on the pagan nations and on them the same. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 4. What does God say when he confronts Cain about Abel's death? The blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. You see, people have to answer for the things that they do. Isaiah 26, 21, speaking about pagan nations, says this, For look, the Lord is coming from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal the blood shed on it and will no longer conceal her slain. All those actions you thought you were getting away with, all those horrific massacres, God didn't forget. He's coming to judge. And here's the thing, as people who walk in obedience, we recognize here, now, in our context, that Jesus has cleansed us of our sin, that we are hidden in Christ. But if we stand apart from him, if we stand outside of Jesus, that judgment and that punishment is coming for us as well. We will pay. And we aren't talking merely about the death that we all physically will die here on this earth. I'm talking about what Revelation talks about as the second death. The second separation, the separation of soul from the presence of God forever. That's the one you don't want. That's the one that we look to God and say, I deserve that, but I ask for pardon in Jesus Christ. We don't want to be compared to the nations around us. And as we think about our lifestyle, the things that we do, the things that we justify, are we comparable? Church, this is intended to be a a cleansing request. For us to hunger and desire to be holy as he is holy. That's not an Old Testament commandment. That's a new. That's in Christ. A hunger and a pursuing of what's right and obedience so that we can be holy as he is holy because we don't want to misrepresent the one who died on the cross to save us from our sin. Amen? I don't want to misrepresent him. So this is associated with nations who don't know God. They're now going to be judged against or by God because they stood against him. And that same judgment's falling on his people because they followed suit. Because they did the same thing. They didn't distinguish themselves from him. Look at verses 9 through 14. It says this, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, Woe to the city of bloodshed. I myself will make the pile of kindling large. I will make the kindling large. 
He says, pile on the logs and kindle the fire. Cook the meat well. Mix in the spices. Let the bones be burned. We need to get a real firm grasp of how disgusting and filthy our sin is. We need to understand, and we should not be trying to understand it according to the world's standards, not by how your media provider describes it, but how God's word says it is. You know, I'd like to think that most of us and, and most of you who have been coming to this church for a long time know that we hold God's word as absolutely sovereign, that God's word is the authority, that it is absolute truth. We say that, but, but is it to you? Do you wash everything that you do through the word of God? Everything that you do, do you wash it through the word of God? Do you look at it and go, okay, this has to, this has to pass his test, not mine. Not my friends, not my families, not my coworkers. This has to be okay with the Lord. And you're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's kind of a, you know, a, a thing in my life that, that, you know, isn't a sin necessarily, but it, I just kind of feel weird, you know, spending this much time doing whatever it is. I'm just leaving that open to interpretation for you. Holy Spirit convict. Now, do you respond to that conviction? Do you do something about it based on what he says, not what the world says? God is the one who is dealing with his people's sin. God is the one who's handling this. What's interesting is you look at the change. The change of how bad things have gotten in the text. It's not just the bones. It's not just the choice cuts anymore. Did you notice that? Look at verse 11. Set the empty pot on its coals so that it becomes hot and its copper glows. Set the what? The empty pot. The meat, the bones, it's gone. Put the empty pot on the coals now. We got to burn the garbage out of it. You ever burn something off? Do you have a self-cleaning function on your oven? Do you know what a self-cleaning function on your oven does? It heats it up super hot. You don't go near it. Most of them will lock when they do this so that your kid doesn't walk in there and try and fry their hand off. It heats it up super hot and it fries everything inside your oven so that you can take a rag and just wipe it out. Right? This is so bad. God puts the the hot the pot on the coals itself without anything inside of it, lets it heat up, and he goes, this is still there. It has frustrated every effort. Look at verse 12. It's frustrated every effort. It's thick corrosion will not come off. Into the fire with the corrosion. Turn up the heat. It's so bad. He goes, I can't even clean it. I can't even clean the city. It's such a mess. Because of what you've done to it with your sin. Verse 13 says, Because of the depravity of your uncleanness, since I tried to purify you, but you would not be purified from your uncleanness, you will not be pure again until I've satisfied my wrath on you. He says, you've pushed me to the very most extremes. 
You forced my hand. The severity has been forced. It's not because God hasn't tried to deal with this in a less severe way. There is no other way to make things right without an absolute purification via God's wrath at this point. And that, notice, that purification is going to come through wrath. He's going to cleanse us out by wrath. What does he offer us purification through right now? You can say his name. He's our Lord and Savior. Jesus. We go to Jesus. What's better? It's a clear choice. What's better to come to Jesus and confess our sin and let him cleanse us because he loves us and he died for us and he wants to fill us with his spirit and walk with us? Or do you want to wait for the wrath of God to do it? By the way, the bones, the meat, they're gone. They're gone. They're done. This is what the full-fledged wrath of God, it's like a teaser trailer of what's coming in the end times. The wrath of God is not something you want aimed at you. And he says this. When I'm done, I'm done. Verse 14. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming and I will do it. I will not refrain. I will not show pity. I will not relent. I will judge you according to your ways and deeds. Is God judging unjustly? No, because he's judging them according to what they've done. It's their own doing. According to what you have done, that's how I will judge you. This is the declaration of the Lord. Thus far in this chapter, not to mention the entirety of what we've studied in Ezekiel up to this point, do you have any question whatsoever regarding how God feels about our sin? Any question? Do you wonder, like, well, God might be okay. He might be okay with some sin. I mean, that should never be something that we even let enter our minds. Like, this is a no-brainer at this point. God hates sin. He hates it. He will deal with it. He's not going to let it pass. If we agree with God, church, please hear me. If we agree with God, why do we not break with sin forever? Would you play with poison? Would you fool around with hell? Would you take fire in your hand? Would you go on living as if it didn't matter whether your sins were forgiven or not? Whether sin had dominion over you or you over sin? Would you continue on if you had gotten the full effect, the full-fledged power of what it means to God when we sin? If we actually understood, would we let it even touch the threshold of our home? And if you are feeling conviction like I have felt conviction over this, then we have to come to God and we have to take action. We have to do what is necessary to be free of sin. You realize that you don't belong to it. You are not enslaved to it. You are free in Christ. Read Romans chapter 6 and 7. You are absolutely free. There is no condemnation, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. You who live in Christ Jesus have been freed from this bondage and you do not have to go back to that. Amen? You don't have to go back. You don't have to let it into your home. You have the power over it. If you let it be there, you are disagreeing with God about its ramifications. You are disagreeing with God as to how serious of an issue it is because he's made it clear. Don't let this be named among you. And not only that, this is what happens to people who allow sin in their lives. They get destroyed. We should not, because it's impossible, be attempting to grow 
in our walk with Christ in sin. You cannot grow in sin. You must grow out of it. You have to mature out of it. Because throughout our lives, we'll look at these different situations and be like, I, this is a sin problem for me. And you're like, okay, I did something about it. Oh, I guess I'll be good for the rest of my life now. Has that been your experience? No. Another sin shows up. Some other temptation. You fail in some way. You do something about it. You mature. You grow out of that. Here's this: The process of sanctification is the Lord revealing to us the incredible sickness of our heart. He's revealing it to us now. Will you do something about it? Awake to the sense of sin's sinfulness and danger. And I didn't misspeak. Sin's sinfulness and danger. Get a hold of how disgusting this is in God's eyes. Understand how filthy it is and that it's not just permeating your life, that it's affecting everything around you. It's infecting everything around. The corrosion is happening around you right now. Remember the words of Solomon in Proverbs 14, 9, when he says, Fools mock at making reparation, but there is goodwill among the upright. Fools mock at making reparation. In other words, a fool mocks at fixing things in their life. Ah, who cares? Ah, I'll do it tomorrow. That's a fool. He says there's goodwill among the upright, those who pursue the righteousness of God. God's people, given to sin, were the choice cuts of meat that were thrown into the pot of Jerusalem. And this very day that this prophecy came to Ezekiel, the siege began at the hands of the Babylonians. It ended terribly. The thing that they love and glory in the most is not God. In fact, if it were to be put into a possession, it would be the temple. And that's what the next section of this chapter talks about. The thing that they love the most being an object. His cleansing fire of judgment is about to fall on a city that as Ezekiel is receiving this prophecy has begun the starvation, the death, the brutality. What do we take away? from a section of scripture such as this. It's full of warning. It's full of spiritual parallel. I want us to make this personal. For ourselves, because then that will manifest in the body. If we make this personal in our own hearts, then it happens in the body. It'll come out in how we function. It'll come out in how we are unified as the church. Are we in love with anything or anyone more than God? Are you in love with anything or anyone more than God? That's more than a minor issue for us. We have a great many ways of justifying sin in our lives. Even taking things that we know to be wrong, even good gifts that God's given to us and raising them up and putting them on a pedestal and worshiping them. We need to be real about this in our own lives, no matter what age. Do I have idols? That thing you worship in God's place. 
The thing that you're tempted to worship in his place. The thing that you love more than him. Even if it's religion, even if it's something like a building that's supposed to be used for his worship, understand this. You are not only worshiping that person or thing, you are seeking refuge within it. You are seeking your comfort, your peace, your solace, your hope, your joy. You are seeking for all of those things in the object that you're worshiping. It's almost like it becomes your pot of destruction that you sit in. What is it? Something as lofty as a person? Something as worthy of your praise as a building? Something as ridiculous as Netflix? It's interesting, isn't it? If we were to base our worship of something off the hours we spend with it, (laughs) I'm looking at you, millennials. But aren't we all guilty? If we based what we believed about what people worship on how much time they spend with it. That's a sobering thought. If we have idols, they become our pot of destruction, not protection or security. That idol is not saving or enriching you. It's the vessel of your destruction. We can't hold on to these things. We can't hold on to them because when we do, that's pride. When we hold on to something in God's place, that is pride. And God resists the proud. But he does what for the humble? He gives them grace. You see, when we come, we go, Lord, I'm broken over this. He gives grace to the humble. But he resists the proud. James 4 Verses 7 through 10, as we close, says this, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and notice this last part, and he will exalt you. It's almost like we have to be wrecked to the ground before he can lift us up and fill us with his joy. A very wise man said this, true Christian joy comes not with the ignoring of sin, but with the experience of the forgiveness of sin. We have to see the serious effects of our sin before we can truly turn from it and find forgiveness. It's interesting because it's not often that people like to quote passages in James 4 that end with, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why is he saying that? He's implying that this is the problem. They are not near to God. The only joy they have is joy of the world. The only things that they are enjoying or glorying in are not of God. And he says, here's the thing. You must be wrecked to the ground. All the things that you trust in, all the stuff that you hold on to needs to be taken all the way down to zero. And then you need to humble yourself. That's humbling yourself. That's making the choice. I'm going to come to you, God. I'm going to be rid of all of these things. And I want you in that place to lift me up and pour your joy right in my life. Is that what you want? (laughs) I have never had so many blank stares. Why? Because I just said, get rid of everything that's causing you to sin. That's a tough reality. Like, oh, I'm willing. Are you? Hold you to it. 
That's what the body of Christ is for. Are you ready to let the Lord take you down to zero so that he can build you up and fill you with this joy? This is my prayer for us this morning as we go to our time of worship. Is that we would be honest with him. I'm going to have the guys come out and get ready for, for worship and take us into that time. But here's, here's what I want to challenge you guys to do. Be honest. Not just with God, but with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be honest. James goes on in chapter 5, he talks about confessing sin to one another. That's uncomfortable. I don't like it. Doesn't matter. He told us to. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. There are things in our lives that we need to deal with here this morning. Maybe the thing that's been bringing you joy needs to cause you to mourn instead. Maybe the thing that you don't think is a problem for you that's everyone else's problem is actually your problem and you need to deal with it this morning. Maybe this sermon isn't for someone else. Maybe it's for you. Maybe this passage is a reminder for you that God hates sin that you're allowing to remain in your life. And so I want to invite you. I'm going to have anyone who feels that they just want to pray for people. Come up to the sides. When the lights go off, you can come up so you don't have to feel like it's a show. I want you to come up and be like, I just want to pray for people. I want to minister to people. I feel like there's someone in this room that needs to come pray with me, and I want to be there for them. I want you to do that. I want you to go to the back if you'd rather go to the back. I want you guys to do ministry here this morning because the Lord wants to heal in this place this morning. And it's not about what we want. It's about what he wants. It's not about our power. It's about his power. And we need to come to him in repentance and be humbled. God wants to do things through us. He wants to use us in this place for as many days as he's given us. What is in our lives that's holding us back? What is the thing that you hold on to or that you hold more dearly than him? Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes I just so badly want your presence to fall on this group of people. Week after week, Lord, as we gather and there are things that the enemy attacks us with, there's temptations that our flesh desire. And God, I just, I want to see you use this church. I want to see you glorified in us. I want to see your kingdom come. I want to see people that are excited and empowered and filled with your joy. And Lord, that joy that you fill us with, Lord, it's like Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
And God, we walk around so powerless, so weak. And, and, and I wonder if it's because we haven't been wretched and mourned that our joy isn't in you, it's in something else. And so God, just pull back the veil that covers our eyes. Pull back the veil that covers our hearts. Show us, Lord, where we have gone astray. And God, I pray, especially in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would speak to those who have heard these words before and have resisted. Would you shake their defenses down? Would you break the walls down that have prevented them from coming and asking for prayer and being ministered to and seeing real change in their life? Holy Spirit, would you fall on our church do what you want do all that you desire we set our own priorities aside your will be done here on this earth as it is in heaven amen